following podcast is not suitable for listeners of any age. The podcast may include poor guitar playing, dad jokes, and inducement of fear acquisition syndrome. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to you wherever you're listening. I'm your host, Carson, and welcome to the Pedals and Pickups podcast. In this podcast, we'll talk about your news in the music industry. We're faster than Internet Explorer, but who isn't? Famous pieces of gear that I'm too broke to buy. Famous artists I'll never be able to play like. And recording tips to get your music out to the masses. So, before we start the show this week, I do have something that might be some good news for some of you. Last episode, we talked about the Dallas Rangemaster Treble Booster. And one of the things that I noted was that it's difficult to find a modern reproduction of the Dallas Rangemaster in a more budget-friendly format from an established manufacturer. A lot of people, myself included, get their Rangemaster clones from individuals on Reverb or on Facebook Marketplace that make their own pedals themselves, and they may not have an established warranty procedure or a very wide distribution network. However, if you're looking for a more budget-friendly option for a Rangemaster Treble Booster, right now Sweetwater is running a spring sale until May 31st. Sweetwater sale includes a lot of different pedal manufacturers, looking at about 15 to 20% off for most of them, but one of those manufacturers is Select Pedals from Catalan Bread. Now, Catalan Bread Effects is a company that's been around for a while. They make some really great treble booster clones. Two that I can think of off the top of my head are the Naga Viper and the Galileo. The Galileo is like an AC30 and a treble booster in a box to get a Brian May sound, while the Naga Viper is just a silicon transistor recreation of a Range Master, plus a few extra controls to help it integrate into your rig. So if you're looking for a more budget-friendly treble booster from an established brand, Catalan Bread's Naga Viper is on sale right now for about $120 to $150, depending on which colorway you get. If that's something that you're looking for and you're in the market for a treble booster clone from a more established brand, definitely check that out. Hop on Sweetwater before the 31st and snag yourself one. But without further ado, let's get into our show for this week. This week, we've got some interesting news with some new product releases and something really cool that happened over auction this last week. We're going to talk about the Univibe circuit, everything that makes it special, and a little bit of the history. We're going to talk about Jimi Hendrix and how to get his signature tone. And we're going to talk about guitar setups, and if you need one. So, getting into our news. Recently, Universal Audio released amp simulator pedals. If you guys haven't heard of Universal Audio, they make a lot of studio brand effects. They've recently started jumping into effects pedals. And they've released their own amp-in-a-box pedals. Now, they have three different models. The Woodrow 55 Tweed, which simulates like early Fender Champ-style amps. A Ruby 63, which is an AC30 clone, and a Dream 65, which is one of the Black Grill Deluxe Reverb Fender amps. Each one of them is about 400 bucks on Sweetwater. Uh, currently, they're, it looks like they're running a sale, but I'm not too sure on that. Their MSRP is about 500 They use DSP-based modeling, so you're looking at computer-based modeling, not necessarily solid-state stuff like you'll see in a lot of amp-in-a-box pedals. So think more Line 6 Helix. Uh, and they're able to be controlled with the Universal Audio Effects app. So that's always a really cool thing. What's really interesting about these specific amp-in-a-box pedals, though, is that they're not necessarily just amp-in-a-box. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Strymon Iridium, but it was a pedal that allowed you to select a few different amp models with a few different cabs for each model and was essentially trying to be almost a rig in a box. But this line of pedals from Universal Audio takes it one step further. It's designed to be your amp 
cabinet, mic, and room in a box, not just a regular amp in a box. So essentially save pedals, these are trying to emulate one entire rig in a single enclosure. And I think that's really cool. They're kind of stepping out and coming for that area of the market, especially as they get more popular. I know I myself really, really enjoy amp in a box pedals. Uh, each one of these pedals has tons of cool features. Uh, you can swap individual speakers and individual cabinets, but uh, each speaker is paired with a mic model, uh, esoteric to that time period. Each pedal has individual features. So if you have, for example, like the Ruby 63, which is the AC30 clone, you can actually put a treble booster in there or a full range booster in there, while the other models have different esoteric effects, things that you would typically find use with those models of amps. Um, all of those can help you emulate the sounds and tones of famous players at the time, which we all love keeping things in a smaller enclosure. And all the demos sound amazing. This is really proving that you know digital signal processing using a computer is going a long way, especially in terms of the amp emulation market. Next in news, what I saw was really, really fascinating, was that Kurt Cobain's Mustang has sold that auction. Now, this is the Mustang from Smells Like Teen Spirit, that music video, the blue one. Uh, it sold for $4.5 million this last week at auction. It was bought by Jim Ursay, who is the owner of the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, Ursay himself already owns a collection of like rock and roll memorabilia, and it's going to go on display with his personal collection. A portion of the sale has actually been agreed to go to the Colts' own Kicking the Stigma mental health charity. You know, I find that really noble that they're being charitable. Uh, it's also not the first time that the sale of a guitar at auction has gone to charity. Uh, previously, the number one spot a few years ago, it's been broken down by uh, David Gilmore's Strat and another guitar, so now it's sitting at number four, I believe, is the Reach Out to Asia Stratocaster. Uh, this was sold at auction as a charitable venture in 2004 for victims of tsunamis in Southeast Asia. It was signed by a bunch of famous players, and it sold for, I believe, about $2.4 million. Might be incorrect on that. But it's really cool that we're seeing more and more of these you know, high price tag instruments going towards charity. So the new number two guitar on the slot, beating out David Gilmore's Stratocaster, is Kurt Cobain's Mustang. And lastly in our news, Rev Amplification has released a Sean Tubbs signature overdrive called the Tilt Overdrive. Uh, Rev Amplification is relatively a new kid on the block in terms of branding out there, but they've got some really high quality stuff. They're primarily an amp manufacturer out of Canada, but they make some great pedals as well, including amps in a box and a noise gate, and now this overdrive. Sean Tubbs, he does a lot of the videos for Rev on YouTube. So he's essentially like their spokesperson, sort of. Uh, he was primarily a Nashville session artist. He played with people like Crystal Lewis, Thousand Foot Crutch, and he's very active in the Warship music scene. Uh, he actually released his own Warship album. Sean Tubbs' demos are very high quality. So if you guys are looking at Rev stuff, definitely go on his channel and check him out. Um, he was actually my personal selling point to get the Rev G-Series amp in a box pedals. So he really does a great job of showing pretty much every situation that you'd use something and the full range of different circuits. This pedal specifically, though, is designed to get his signature sound, especially with his worship music stuff. It's an overdrive and a boost circuit in one. 
Now, what's unique about the boost side of this circuit is that it has a control called tilt. And that tilt control is specifically designed for achieving like a really vintage, gritty edge of breakup tone on the boost circuit. So something where you're just pushing your amp just a little bit harder, say with like, you know, a TC Spark or a Range Master treble booster. Uh, it's larger than a normal enclosure, but it's got top-mounted jacks. It's a 9 to 12 volt power source for extra headroom. It's got soft relay switching. So if you ever play like the later Earthquaker devices, pedals or Walrus pedals, you'll see how much you love that, especially because those switches are also rated for a lot more cycles, so they tend to last longer. And it's True Bypass, right? True Bypass is always a great option. Uh, it retails for 270 bucks at Sweetwater. So if you like his sound or if you really like those vintage edge of breakup tones, definitely check it out. Pick one up for yourself and let me know how you like it. Now, this episode today is primarily going to center around a very famous effect type. You probably heard it on a few different recordings, but you may not have known what it was. And that is the Univibe. So, just in case you're not familiar with it, I'm going to play a really quick, clean guitar track with a Univibe so you can hear what it sounds like. Let's take a listen to a Univibe sound demo. At the time, the Univibe was the most common form of modulation that you could find in a stomp box. A lot of forms of modulation that we see today, like you know, phase, or phaser, flanger, or chorus, are done by manipulating tapes in a tape recorder. But this was actually the first form of modulation that was commonly available in a stomp box. Uh, Shinai, or at the time Honey, was a Japanese audio equipment manufacturer. They did a lot of OEM stuff. Now, OEM is where a organization or company will manufacture the same circuit, uh, most oftentimes in the same enclosure, sometimes with different colors, and they'll put other brands' names on it. So if you see something that is essentially the same thing but has multiple different brands, like, like a store brand type of product, that's essentially what Shinai did at the time. Other versions that you'll see of this same Univibe made by them include the Jax Vibra Chorus and the Lafayette Rotovibe. And MSRP in America for the Lafayette version, the one that I could find an old advert for, was $79.95 in 1969. Doesn't sound like a lot of money. However, when you adjust it for inflation in 2022, it was 630 bucks, right about there. So definitely this is a piece of equipment for more professional guitarists at the time. Uh, one of the common myths about the Univibe was that it was rumored to emulate the Leslie speaker cabinet rotating horn. Um, and now, if you're not sure what this is, if you've ever seen like the old Hammond B3 organs, like if you listen to the Doors albums, things like that, those speaker cabinets had a rotating speaker in the top of it that gave it a really interesting type of modulation. You had controls on the organ that could change the speed of it. So if you want to hear what that sounds like, 
This is a digital recreation of me playing on a MIDI controller using one of those rotating speaker cabinets on a Hammond B3 model. So this is what the Univibe sound was rumored to sound like. Let's give a listen to it now. So you can see where the confusion comes from. It definitely sounds similar to the Univibe demo that we listened to in the beginning. But Fumio Mieta actually came on an interview a lot later in his life and said that the specific sound that he was going after was attempting to attain the sound inspired by listening to Radio Moscow undergo atmospheric modulation. So he could receive Radio Moscow where he was at, but it was definitely very far away. So listening to it, you know, skip off the atmosphere, things that old long-distance radio transmissions would do at the time, he was trying to go after the sound of that specifically. Uh, Univibe definitely gained traction after its use by players like Jimi Hendrix, Robin Trower, and David Gilmour. This is around like the late 60s, early 70s when they really start getting into it. And eventually it was picked up by Univox in America in the late 70s, then Dunlop. And Dunlop now actually owns the trademark on Univibe as of 2020. So, what makes the Univibe so special as a circuit? So the actual circuit is marketed as a chorus and a vibrato, but it's actually neither. It's really a phaser and a miniature mixer, and we'll talk about how the design of the Univibe differs from like a regular Phase 90. The sweeping effect in the original Univibe was actually achieved by a lamp inside of the housing that was surrounded by photoresistors. So photoresistors are an electrical component that respond and create a signal when they receive light. Now, photoresistors around the lamp actually determine the degree of phase the signal is knocked out of. So like a regular phaser, you're dealing with the signal being knocked out of phase. Uh, speed control adjusts the lamp's speed so it blinks faster or slower, and it increases the rate at which photoresistor receives light. It's a very similar effect to a phase 90, but just constructed a little different. That difference in construction actually allows us to get a different sound out of it, a more 3D swishing sound, a rotating sound, more than just the regular type of phaser sound that you'll see from these traditional phase 90s. So just to demonstrate a point, I'm going to use a regular phase 90. This one will be the block logo version from MXR, and we're going to set it to high noon on the single knob there and try to make our Univibe sound very similar to it. So let's give a listen to the phaser first, and then afterwards we'll tweak our Univibe and see how similar we can get them to sound. So that was our phase 90. Now if we take our Univibe and we set our speed just a little bit below noon, we set our intensity at about 2 o'clock, and we keep our chorus switch, which we've already talked about that, but I'll explain why it's not an actual chorus switch. But we keep that turned off. Go ahead and listen to it and see how close we get. To my ears, it sounds pretty close. So, let's take a listen to our Univibe. So we can definitely hear the differences. It sounds pretty close, but also keep in mind that if you're trying to use your phaser as a univibe, you don't have all the controls available to you. So 
So it's easier to make a univibe sound like a phaser than it is to try to use a phaser to substitute your univibe. But we see the similarities in the sounds. Uh, the photoresistors on the univibe circuit are in a lot of different positions, essentially usually oriented in like a circle around your lamp, and they receive slightly different brightnesses of the lamp. And that allows them to determine which photoresistor is actually receiving the light at one time and why they all sound just a little bit different. The circuit uses a low-frequency oscillator. It's a similar control measure to like a flanger to move through the photoresistors, making it sound more 3D as it's moving in a circle, while a phaser is just a linear progression of FET chips. Now, talking about the chorus switch, because I owe you guys an explanation on that. On the original Shinai Univibe, you'll see it's like a red and white switch. On the MXR M68 Univibe, it's a little button in the top left corner, similar location of like the mod button on the carbon copy. All this actually does is blend your dry signal back in with your modulated signal. This is sort of why I say the Univibe acts like a mini mixer. So while it's not a true chorus, it is doubling your signal in a way. Now, one more note about the Univibe circuit is that the original Shinai Univibe and a lot of the copies had some type of expression pedal. It looked similar to like a wah pedal on a treadle, and that expression pedal allowed you to manipulate the speed of the rotating effect while you were playing. Uh, the Univibes that I'm going to go over, these copies, I'm going to make sure to denote whether or not they have a expression pedal input or a foot pedal that comes with them, or in one case a tap tempo. That way, if you're looking to manipulate the speed of your Univibe on the fly, you know which options will do that for you. So, if you really like the sound of the, the original Shinai Univibe, and you want the original, I've only seen one available on the used market on Reverb as of this week, and it's sitting at about five grand. So, make them an offer, especially if the uh, vintage one is extremely important to you. But, if you're like me, and you're willing to go for some copies, especially modern-day reproductions, you got a lot less expensive options available to you. There's two different types of Univibe copies on the market. There's ones that don't use a lamp, so they use FETs or DSP, and there's ones that do use a lamp. The ones that don't use a lamp are going to be a little bit less expensive than the ones that do, and our first option for our non-lamp-driven Univibes is the MXR M68 Univibe. Uh, this Univibe model is actually FET-driven, similar to the MXR Phase 90. It does not have a foot pedal or an expression pedal input or a tap tempo, anything like that. You just got your speed knob, and that's 129 bucks. It sounds really great, even though it's not a lamp-driven Univibe. And let's go ahead and take a listen so you guys can decide for yourself if you really like the sound or not. So this is the MXR M68 Univibe. Now, I really like the MXR Univibe. It's got a great little compact footprint, so it's an MXR standard size enclosure. The only real complaint that I have about it is not being able to adjust the speed on the fly. And then like with all MXR pedals, it's got that power jack right next to the input jack. Sometimes it makes it a little difficult, especially if you're real estate challenged on your pedal board. Another option, if you don't want to get a lamp-driven Univibe and you want to go a little less expensive, is the new XFX Monterey Vibe. It's actually DSP-driven, so it uses a computer to simulate the Univibe sound, 
But as we've seen with the universal audio new line of pedals, like DSP has come a long way. Just go online, listen to some demos, see if you like it, see if it's for you. But keep in mind that this option also does not have a foot pedal. It goes for about 70 bucks. But if you want a lamp-driven unified, let's say that you want the actual, or at least as close as possible to the actual circuit of the original, we've also got a few options. First one is the JHS Unicorn. Uh, JHS Unicorn does not have a foot pedal or an expression pedal input, but it does have tap tempo. So if you want to tap out your speed like you can with a lot of delays or uh, different types of modulations that have trails or tremolo, it's a great option. It's 219 bucks. And keep in mind, Sweetwater's also having their sale right now, so you might be able to pick it up even cheaper. One of my favorite lamp-driven Univibe circuits is actually Earthquaker Devices, the Depths. This also doesn't have a foot pedal or expression pedal input, but it is still in the standard enclosure. It's got top mount jacks, it's got some really cool graphics, and it sounds great. So, if you like the sound of the demo you're about to hear, you can pick up the Earthquaker Devices, the Depths, for 200 bucks anywhere you spend your life savings like me. Let's give a listen to an actual lamp-driven Univibe circuit. So that was the Earthquaker devices, the depths. Another option if you want an actual lamp-driven Univibe is the Electroharmonics Good Vibes. It actually does have an expression pedal input on it, so if you want to use an expression pedal or a volume pedal with like a TRS adapter or anything like that, you can adjust the speed on the fly. It's 160 bucks, and it's a really great option. It's a little bit larger than a standard size enclosure, but if you're using an expression pedal with it, I don't think you're too worried about that. Now, moving on, one of the most famous users of the Univibe is Jimi Hendrix. Now buckle up, because this section of the podcast is going to be a long one. We always talk about like the history of vintage gear and things like that, but we don't really get too much into the history of the players. However, to understand the history of Jimi Hendrix is to understand the history of his gear. So I think it's really important that we go over, you know, how he grew up, and the technology that was released around the time that he was playing and things like that. Plus, he's also just got a really, really interesting story in terms of how he grew up and how he started playing guitar. Now, Jimi Hendrix was born Johnny Allen Hendrix in Seattle, Washington in 1942. Uh, Hendrix actually had a really rough life. His father, uh, Al Hendrix, was in the Army, and when Jimmy was due to be born, uh, Al was actually denied paternity leave and put in the stockade for fear of going uh, AWOL to see Jimmy's birth. So they were worried that he was going to run away to see his kid. They didn't let him go. They put him in jail just because. Uh, Al actually returned to the family in 1945, but he couldn't hold a job. His parents would drink and they would fight consistently, and eventually they got divorced. Uh, after they were divorced, Jimmy's mom died in 1958 when Jimmy was 16, and his father refused to let them attend the funeral. He gave Jimmy and his brother whiskey, saying that this is how a man deals with things. And I think that's a little bit of foreshadowing in terms of nearing the end of his life, especially with the substance abuse and things like that. But Getting into the actual guitar section of things, guitar was always present in Jimmy's life. Uh, he actually walked around his elementary school with a broom, miming it as a guitar, and a social worker reportedly applied for funds to get Jimmy a guitar, citing that he could have lasting psychological damage if they didn't get him one, but it was ultimately denied. 
His first instrument was actually a ukulele that they found that only had one string. Uh, they found it in the trash in 1957, and he learned to play Elvis songs by ear, note for note, on that single string. His first guitar was an acoustic that he bought in 1958, and he started playing local gigs at the time and realized that he needed an electric because he couldn't be heard over everybody else at gigs. He was regularly known for being like a show-off when he played publicly, and he was actually fired from his first band for showing off on the guitar between sets. Now, Jimmy uh, had a rough history growing up, as we've already talked about. He started stealing cars when he was a teenager, and at 19 he got caught, and the judge gave him the option of joining the Army or going to jail. So he chose the Army, and while he was there, he actually wrote home saying that he needed his guitar sent to him. At that time, he had like a, a red silver tone that his dad had bought him, and they sent it to him. He started playing clubs on the bass, and after a while, he was discharged for repeated misconduct, with some people actually stating that his guitar made him shirk his duties. Um, after he got out of the Army, one of his Army buddies went back with him. Uh, they played for a while at different clubs and gigs, and he started recording with the Isley Brothers. He played the Chitlin Circuit in the South, and eventually he played with Curtis Knight and the Squires, who was a relatively big like R&B jazz band on that circuit. Uh, but then he was discovered by Linda Keith and Keith Richards, who were dating at the time, and they introduced Jimmy to the manager of the Rolling Stones. Uh, Jimmy auditioned to the manager, tried to show him his chops, and the manager unfortunately rejected him. But at that point, Chas Chandler, who was the bassist of The Animals, was looking to get out of actually performing in the music scene and become a manager and producer. So Chas Chandler, he had a brilliant idea. At this time, you know, black music was blowing up in England, especially you know R&B and the early beginnings of rock. It was very, very popular in England. And this is a stark contrast to how the situation was at the time in the United States, where you'd have black musicians that would be invited to play at clubs that they weren't even allowed to actually attend. So they'd go play at whites-only clubs and then be kicked out immediately afterwards. Now, this is right after the time of the Civil Rights Movement, so you still see a lot of racism and things like that affecting uh, a lot of this gig scene, especially the music scene, but the music was still popular. In England, you saw a lot of white musicians that were trying to emulate the sound and the style of these popular black musicians in America. One of those is Eric Clapton. You might be familiar with him from his time with the Yardbirds or his session work, but Clapton would go on stage and attempt to emulate the sound and the style of these people. So Chas Chandler realizes he can bring this young kid over to England, become his manager, and make his popularity boom. That's essentially why he got so popular in England in the first place. He was an American that went over to England to play this style of music. Chaz Chandler eventually recruited the members for the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Uh, they played quite a bit of shows, and they were extremely popular in Europe, around England, France, places like that. But Jimi Hendrix Experience eventually broke up due to Jimi either showing up drunk or showing up late or just not showing up to recording sessions at all. After that, the band broke up. Jimmy then went and played Woodstock the next year in 1969. At that time, he was actually the highest paid rock musician in the world, and he formed an all-black power trio called Band of Gypsies. After this, they recorded a few more albums, uh, especially at Electric Ladyland, and then Jimmy unfortunately died September 17, 1970 in London in his girlfriend's flat. 
He aspirated after an overdose of sleeping tablets. Jimmy died at the age of 27, which sort of lends credence to that, uh, that joke of the 27 Club, where all famous musicians die at the age of 27. But the mark that he left on the history of rock and roll is, you can't argue that. I mean, Jimmy was a huge influence for so many different people. He was extremely talented. Now, what's really interesting about Jimmy himself is that he didn't use a lot of gear. Most of the gear that he used, he borrowed, stole, or it was given to him. And starting especially with his guitars, I know we talked about in another episode, Jimi Hendrix's first Stratocaster was actually stolen from Keith Richards by Linda Keith. He is famous for his Stratocasters, but Jimmy also did play like Gibson Flying Bees. Uh, there's a few pictures of him playing Jazz Masters when he was sideman on the Chitlin circuit. He played Duosonics, Les Pauls, SGs, pretty much everything out there at the time that was popular. Jimmy actually strung his guitars upside down for left-handed playing. Uh, I've actually been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to see some of Jimmy's guitars, and it's crazy to see how much he would actually use these, I mean, especially on one of his Stratocasters. The frets had been crowned and leveled so many times that it was essentially level with a fingerboard at that point. But it was totally cool to see those actual instruments themselves. Uh, if you want to get Jimmy's tone, starting with a guitar, you really want to look for something with single coils or humbuckers. To start off the list here, a great choice that you can make for less expensive than an American Stratocaster would be a Fender Made in Mexico Player Strat. These go for about 850 bucks. They're very similar quality. In fact, if you look at Fender's videos, especially their factory tours, they actually use the same parts in between Mexico and the uh, Corona California factory. So you're getting similar quality for a much reduced price. If 850 bucks is a little bit too expensive for you, you can also go for the Squire Classic Vibe 70 Strat. I hype up this a lot. It's been, I think, in every episode since we've started, but that's just because it's a great guitar at a really great price point. So if you're looking for a Stratocaster, Squire Classic Vibe 70s is a great route to go. Then if you want something with humbuckers or you want something with a little funkier shape, got a little bit more pizzazz, especially if you're playing gigs, an Epiphone Flying V for one of their higher quality models is about 670 bucks. For Jimmy's amps, initially he used whatever he could borrow or find. Uh, he'd use you know, smaller 30-watt tube amps, Silvertones, Supros, things like that. But eventually he started using Marshall 100-watt Super Leads when he went to England. He bought four of them. He'd usually use three of them, so 300-watt Super Lead heads on top of a full stack each, and then the fourth one was a backup. But the Marshall Super Leads are extremely expensive, so if you want the real one, you're going to be looking at around three grand. But some great options that you can go for to get that same tone are the Marshall Code 50. They're 400 bucks. It's Marshall's own modeling amp. You get the Blackstar ID Core 40 V3, that's 230 bucks. Blackstar ID Core series is a really great option for people looking for modeling amps. You know, I really enjoy mine, uh, especially there's been a lot of talk with Blackstar about their new Silver Line series. I haven't gotten a chance to try those yet, but the ID Core V3 series is still a great option, especially now that they're going up on the used market that everybody's upgrading. Our last option and what we're going to be using for this demo is the Vox Valvner G Copperhead Drive. I talked about the Vox Valvner G series before. 
I'm a big fan of amp in a box pedals, and the Box Valdrin G-Series actually uses Korg's new tube technology. So if you open up these pedals and you look in there, you'll see something about an inch and a half long. It's a little tube that is flat. So it's not like your regular 6L6 or EL34 power tubes, things like that. It's not even like your 12AX7 preamp tubes. It is its own proprietary type of tube that they're using to get tube sounds out of a smaller circuit. And I really enjoy the silk drive when we talked about the John Mayer sound, but the copperhead drive is their Marshall sound. It's a really great option, especially if you're trying to get a Marshall sound on a budget. So without further ado, let's use our Squire Classic Vibe 70 Strat and our Vox Valve Energy Copperhead Drive. We're gonna dime the gain on the Copperhead Drive and set our EQ relatively in the middle, adjust it for your specific pickups or your specific rig, and we'll get a great foundation tone for the Jimi Hendrix sound. Let's give a listen to what our guitar and our amp sound like together. So we've got our good foundation tone, but we all know Jimi Hendrix is extremely famous for using the Dallas Arbiter fuzz face. One thing to note about the Dallas Arbiter fuzz face is that Jimi Hendrix has seen a lot with it in pictures, but there weren't a lot of pedal enclosures commercially available at the time. So you'll actually see these pictures of fuzz faces, but they're not a real original Dallas Arbiter fuzz face. A guy named Roger Mayer that worked at a Bell Labs that Jimi Hendrix would work with a lot would actually pull all the electronics out of the fuzz face and put his own circuits in there. So one of the great ways that you can get that tone is using the Dunlop Fuzz Face Mini 3. It's the Jimi Hendrix Signature Fuzz Face. It's 129 bucks, And this is encompassing the original Fuzz Face circuit plus all of the mods that Roger Mayer would do to the fuzz faces that Jimmy would use. It's a great option to get exactly that tone for that fuzz face and that circuit. Uh, plus it's pedal board friendly because it's a mini fuzz face, so you don't have that giant landmine style enclosure of the original fuzz faces. And it's got a power input jack. So if you don't want to run your pedal off of a nine volt battery, you can run it off your power supply. Another great option to get Jimi Hendrix fuzz tone is the TC Electronic Rusty Fuzz. Now this isn't a copy of Jimi Hendrix modded fuzz faces or anything like that. It's just a copy of a standard fuzz face. But it's about half the price, a little bit less than the Fuzzface Mini. Sitting at $45, it's from TC Electronics Smorgasbord of Tone Line, and that's what we're going to be using for our demo today. So let's give a listen to our guitar, our amp, and our Fuzzface clone all put together. <laughs> So the fuzz face definitely gives Jimi Hendrix his signature type of solo tone, but one of the things that he's also known for using quite a bit is what's called the Octavia Fuzz. It was originally designed by Roger Mayer, and vintage versions of this can go for insane amounts of money, but they do come in a really cool looking spaceship enclosure. I'm really jealous of it. Now, if you want an Octavia Fuzz, there's two ways you can go about it. One of the ways is getting a clone of the actual Octavia. So an option for that would be the full-tone Octafuzz at 140 bucks, 
or you can go ahead and get what's called a Dan Armstrong Green Ringer. Now, the Dan Armstrong series of effects were kind of wonky. They actually plug directly into your guitar, and then you would plug your guitar cable into the effect. They only had a little mini throw switch on them to turn the effect on and off. It's been copied a few times, but one of the most recent copies is the Earthquaker Devices Tentacle. This goes for about 100 bucks. It's got super cool graphics to boot, but you'll notice that there's no controls on it other than the foot switch. This is because it is a copy of the Green Ringer. Didn't have any controls other than that little mini throw switch to turn it on and off. Now the tentacle by itself doesn't sound very good. It's not the best thing in the world. But it really shines when it's paired with a fuzz pedal, especially a very high quality one. So for this demo, we're going to be taking the EQD tentacle and we're going to be throwing it in front of our TC Electronic Rusty Fuzz to get our Octavia Fuzz sound. It's a really great option, especially if you're like me and you love fuzz pedals and you have a bunch of them and you want to be able to throw an octave fuzz sound on any of them at any time. So let's take a listen to our amp, our TC Electronic Rusty Fuzz, and our EQD Tentacle Analog Octave Up Circuit all working in unison to get a great Jimi Hendrix solo tone. <laughs> You gotta love that sound. A dime Marshall amp, a fuzz face, and an octafuzz just sounds absolutely wild. It sounds raw, it sounds emotional, there's a lot of feedback going on, the waveform's folding over itself. It just sounds gorgeous. Jimi Hendrix also used two more pedals that he was really famous for. It was the Vox V846 Wah. The V846 Wah, you can still buy that today. Vox still has it in production. It's a hand-wired Wah, costs quite a bit of money, but a more budget-conscious version is the Vox V847. It's, you know, overseas assembled by machines, things like that. But it's 119 bucks. so if you want to get the Vox Wah tone, go ahead and pick up a V847. Another option, and the one we're going to be using in this demo, a little bit less expensive, it's the Dunlop GCB95. It's just a classic modern crybaby. Get it for 100 bucks. It's a great option, especially if you want to have a wah that is extremely common in the industry that a lot of your favorite guitarists probably use. Crybaby's a little more versatile option, a little more widely seen than the Vox Waz. Let's give a listen to our Crybaby. Now the last pedal that Jimi Hendrix was really famous for using was the Univibe. Uh, we really start to see the Univibe later on in his career, especially around Band of Gypsies, and very notably when he did the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock in 1969. So for this demo, for the Univibe, we're going to use the MXR M68. It's the first Univibe I ever had. I still use it quite a bit. Even though it's not lamp-driven, it still sounds really great, and I love it. So here's our Jimi Hendrix tone with our MXR Univibe. So that wraps up our Jimi Hendrix tone using our pedals, but there are a few notes that I want to talk about in terms of his pedals. Now, like we talked about before, it's undeniable that Jimi Hendrix is one of the most famous guitarists in history. 
so that sees a lot of signature guitars, signature amps, signature lines of pedals, things like that, that companies will do to, well, try to make money. Some of these are really good. Some of these are not so good. Uh, one line of pedals that I really do enjoy is MXR's signature Jimi Hendrix line of pedals. They're in little mini enclosures. They've got super cool psychedelic graphics on them, and they're copies of things like his Octavia Fuzz, things like that. But something really interesting is that the company Digitech made a pedal called the Jimi Hendrix Experience Pedal. It was sort of a concept pedal. It's a little bit larger than a Crybaby Wah. So you've got the, you know, rocker pedal on the treadle, and then you've got a few knobs on top of it. But what's interesting about this pedal is that there's a rotary switch where you can set seven different models based on famous tones that he's used in his career on different songs or like for the Star Spangled Banner performance. Uh, you can actually even use the Jimi Hendrix Experience pedal as your amp and cabinet sim through the mixer out that it has on it, or you can use the amp output that it has on it and just use the pedal tones, but it simulates through DSP his actual amp pedals and cabinets, and uh, I think it's a really cool option. You don't see him crop up a lot on the used market, but it's something that you can try to get into if you'd like. The demos do sound pretty good, but they sound, at least to my ear, too clean. Like, there's no, like, aggression or feedback or anything like that that you hear that's normal with Jimi Hendrix tones. You know, the waveform isn't all over the place. It just sounds a little too cut and dry for my taste. And I think that's one of the problems with, like, early DSP-based pedals and early DSP-based amp simulators, things like that, is that there's a lot of work put into mimicking the tone, but some of the things in the frequency response, especially in the high end, tend to get cut off or just missed, or they don't model things that, even though on their own they sound bad and they might be normally recognized as a problem, they still contribute to the overall sound and the emotion of the tone. But if you're looking to get into something a little bit older or you really love Digitech or you just want an all-in-one solution to the Jimi Hendrix tone, See if one crops up on the used market. See if you can find it and give it a try. Let me know how you like it. It might work for you if it doesn't work for me. Now, we've talked about Jimi Hendrix. We've talked about the Univibe. We've talked about how to get that type of tone. But like I talked about before, when I went to go see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we saw Jimi Hendrix guitars there, and it seemed like you know his frets were really worn down. In some cases, the nut slots weren't seated right. Things like that that would have made the guitar a little bit uncomfortable to play. A lot of people, especially just starting out, don't know that there are a lot of adjustment points on the guitar. We're not just looking at the tuners. There's a lot of things that you can change, not only to make your guitar sound better, but to make it play more comfortably. So what's it called when you adjust all these things? You might have heard the term before. Usually it's called a setup. What is a setup, and do I need one? Now, the definition of a setup depends on where you take your guitar. For some places, it could just be a cleaning and a restringing. For other places, it could be a whole bunch of work. Typically, the amount of work that they do on your guitar is going to be reflected in the price. Now, I've seen setups cost anywhere between 30 to 120 bucks, depending on you know where you go and the level of work they do. Uh, that's not something that I want to spend, especially with the amount of guitars I have. Getting them all set up would cost a small fortune. So 
I like to do the setup work myself. And if you have the tools, you should be able to DIY just about everything on this list. So what are the things that a setup includes? Arguably one of the most important things would be a truss rod adjustment. So your truss rod is actually a metal rod that runs through your neck and it controls something called the neck relief. Basically how much the neck bows backward away from the strings or forward towards the strings. If you've ever sat there and held a rubber band and plucked it, you'll notice it vibrates more in the middle than it does towards the sides where you're holding it at. It's similar to a guitar string, so you need to bow your neck just slightly to give it some more room for the string to actually vibrate in the middle and not get a bunch of fret buzz. Usually you don't want your neck bowing forward, you want it either straight or with a little bit of relief. There's plenty of different ways to check this. You can use a straight edge and lay it flat over the frets to see if there's a gap in the middle. There's also like specific neck relief measurement tools. It looks sort of like a straight edge, but it's got notches in it for, uh, to make room for the frets. That way it's laying directly on the fret board. And then you can also sometimes look down the guitar from the bridge end and get an idea of how much bow there is. But depending on the guitar and depending on how good your eyes are, there can be an optical illusion that distorts your perception of that. To adjust your truss rod though, all you need is an Allen key. It usually comes with your guitar if you buy it new. And truss rod adjustment points are either at the top near the headstock right behind the nut, or they're at the bottom with a little spoke wheel. It's for electric guitars. For acoustics, they're usually inside the sound hole right at the bottom of the neck where it meets the body. Essentially, you just turn the truss rod in either direction until you get the amount of neck relief you want. Usually it takes a little bit for the guitar to settle in, so you'll want to make a slight adjustment, maybe a quarter or a half of a turn at a time, then play it for a little bit, see if it fixes the fret buzz, and move on to more adjustments. Another thing that gets adjusted is your bridge and saddle height. So when we talk about action, we're referring to the height of the strings off the frets. Low action will be easier to play, but might result in some more fret buzz, while high action results in very little fret buzz, but you can be pushing down so far that you're bending the string out of tune and that it just makes it very difficult to play a guitar, you can't play very quickly. Easiest way to adjust this is with your bridge and saddle height. So most saddles, especially on like a fender style bridge, will have little set screws in the saddles, which is where the strings terminate at the bridge. And that allows you to adjust the height of the individual string, or like on a telly where there's two strings per saddle, adjust the height of the pair of strings to get it as tall as you want. That way it's comfortable, but there's no fret buzz. On acoustic guitars, it's a little bit more difficult. You usually have to take the bone saddle out because all the strings rest on it and sand it down. And if you sand down too far, then you might have to get another bone saddle blank and recut it yourself, which for some people might be a little bit too much work. If you've got a tunematic bridge, which is like a Gibson Les Paul style bridge, you've usually got two screws on either side of the bridge. It's a little less adjustment room, but you're able to still adjust one screw at a time and get the bridge somewhat level to where you've got a good action going on. Another way to adjust your action is your nut slots. Uh, nut slots are, it's difficult for the regular guitarist to adjust their nut slots. And typically that's because of the barrier of entry. And what I mean by that is that actual nut files cost a lot. 
if you go on Amazon and you look up guitar nut files, you will find droves of cheap little, air quotes, guitar nut files that are actually just little welding torch tip cleaners with notches cut into them. These don't work very well. Uh, if you're going to get nut files, I recommend going to Stumac or going to Music Nomad and investing in the actual high-quality nut files meant for luthiery or work on guitars. Nut slots, if they're not cut right, you can end up having a very high action no matter how much you lower your bridge height. It'll make playing on the first fret extremely uncomfortable. And if they're too low, you'll never be able to fix fret buzz no matter how high you put your bridge. So cutting your nut slots is extremely important for a setup. It's something that's probably best left to professionals just because of the barrier to entry. And it's another thing that you want to consider if you're changing gauges of strings. So if you're going to like a larger gauge of strings, maybe from like 9s to 11s, you're going to need to recut those nut slots so that they sit comfortably in the nut. Another thing they typically do is clean and check the electronics. This is pretty basic. If you go to your local guitar store, they probably have a product called Deoxit. It comes in a little aerosol can, and it's a great deoxidizer for things like pots and switches in your guitar. You want to spray that in these electronic components, especially if they start sounding pretty scratchy. Uh, it'll fix that right up. I wouldn't recommend using like WD-40 or regular electronics cleaner because those tend to have silicates in them, and especially with moving parts like switches and knobs, you're going to end up gunking it up after a while because that silicon will attract dust and things like that into the components. Another thing they'll do is clean and polish the frets. Sometimes they'll level and crown them too, but typically cleaning and polishing the frets just includes using a really high grit of sandpaper and then maybe using a polishing compound or a Dremel. If you've ever been playing your guitar and you've been bending strings and you've noticed that your bends are feeling very scratchy on the frets, probably means it's time for a fret polish. Your frets should be nice and shiny and never dull. If you want to do it yourself, I know Diodario makes a great little guitar care maintenance kit, and in there they include some blue, slightly abrasive wipes for polishing your own frets. Another thing that'll be done to your guitar at a usual setup will be conditioning the fingerboard. Uh, there's plenty of different products to condition the fingerboard. Uh, I know my, I myself, I typically use the Dunlop Guitar Care Kit. Uh, it's got quite a few different guitar cleaning solutions in there. And a lot of people use lemon oil. Now, it is not actual lemon oil. The acidity of a lemon will essentially start to ruin your guitar fingerboard. But lemon oil is actually essentially a type of furniture polish that just has a lemon scent to it. Although I wouldn't recommend using actual furniture polish on your guitar if you can get the real thing. The real thing that's meant for guitar wood is always going to be better. But keep in mind that you're only going to want to condition the fingerboard if it's unfinished, i.e. usually like a rosewood or an ebony fingerboard. If it's a finished maple fingerboard like a lot of Fender guitars, you're just going to want to wipe that off with regular guitar cleaner. You don't want to put any lemon oil or conditioning oil on there. Another thing they're going to adjust at your setup is going to be your pickup height. Pickup height is extremely important when it comes to note clarity and pickup output. So if you bring your pickups closer to your strings, your guitar is going to have a lot more output, you're going to be able to get distortion out of it a lot easier, but because of the proximity of the strings to the poles, it's going to be a little difficult in getting note clarity. So your notes might sound muddy or blend together, things like that. 
moving your pickups away might help, especially if you're playing cleaner stuff or extremely technical music where you want to hear a lot of definition. Another thing they'll adjust is called intonation. Now, if you've noticed on your electric guitar, there's springs to the rear of your saddles, or on a tunematic bridge, the saddles are usually on some type of threaded screw poking through the middle of them. This allows you to move the saddles back and forth a small amount. Intonation refers to the actual length of the guitar string from where it terminates at the nut to where it terminates at the saddle. And if this length isn't exactly right, the string will not be in tune up and down the neck. So the open string might be in tune, but when you get down to the seventh or eighth fret, you might be a little sharper, a little flat. Intonation is something that you can do yourself. There's plenty of videos on YouTube showing you how to do it. You usually only need either a flathead or a Phillips head screwdriver. And all you're gonna do is essentially chase the needle. If your string is starting to go flat as you get to the 12th fret, you're gonna wanna move your saddle forward closer to the nut. If it's starting to go sharp when you get to the 12th fret, you're going to want to move your saddle rearward or away from the nut, chasing the needle on the tuner. It's a great way to intonate your guitar yourself, make sure it's in tune up and down the neck. They're going to do a general clean and polish, probably just use, like I said, from that Dunlop guitar care kit, polish off the body, get any dirt or sweat or residue off of it, and then they're going to restring it. Usually these setups will include the cost of new strings. If they're a less expensive setup, you might have to buy strings and bring it to them, but they're going to restring your guitar at the end of it, especially with all the adjustments that they do. Uh, like I said, most of this can be done DIY, if not all of it. It just depends on your level of experience and comfort. And if you're not comfortable with something, either hire a professional or you know do what I did to learn. Either practice on like an old guitar or find a beater guitar for cheap on Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace. Try to stay local, that way you're not paying for shipping, and practice on that. Uh, it's a great way to get into luthery and guitar maintenance and a good way to save yourself some money. Now, to wrap up the show, I always like to do this cool music fact. And if you remember from the beginning of our episode, we talked about Kurt Cobain's guitar taking the number two slot for the most expensive guitar ever sold. If you guys didn't know, the most expensive guitar ever sold currently has actually been Kurt Cobain's Martin D18E. So Kurt Cobain's guitars actually own the number one and number two slots for most expensive guitar ever sold. Uh, the most expensive guitar ever sold, his Dreadnought, was a Martin Acoustic. It was serial number seven out of only 302 of that D18E model, and it was used on the MTV Unplugged set sold at auction for $6 million in 2020. And I think it's really crazy that now we're seeing like music that really kind of got me into guitar, uh, those musicians getting that recognition, unfortunately, after they're dead in the ways of their instruments and their memorabilia being extremely expensive at auction. I thought that was really cool to see, really interesting to see that his guitars are both number one and number two. But... I hope you guys enjoyed the episode this week. Thank you so much for hanging out with me and taking the time to learn about some gear and talk about some better alternatives for us more budget-minded musicians. It's great to talk to you guys. Can't wait to get back at it next week. So if you have any topics that you want to talk about, you want to chat about gear, you want me to bring something up on the show, just shoot me an email at pedalsandpickups at gmail.com and I'll be more than happy to talk to you guys. I'll respond to it as soon as I can. 
So that's it for this week. I'll see you guys next time. Have a great day.